Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. But where we were was the moths and the bats. We talked about that. Uh, many of you heard me tell that story before. And that's the idea that, well, basically moths, a uh, certain kind of moth, have an ear that's tuned in simply to bats because they're major predators in bats. Right? Guppies and fronds. Female guppies actually prefer red coloration on guppies, but guppies are orange. The closest thing to um, Red that they, that they can get, that the males can get to without being noticed so much by prawns, because prawns really notice that they're a major predator. Prawns really notice red. They, they prefer red and they attack red. Um, and the key point here then is that evolution isn't just, a, the, let's put it this way the environment isn't just a static thing, it isn't just, you know, nature. Sort of, I mean, it's nature, but if you know what I mean, it's not just outside, it's also what lives outside. Okay? So you've also got stuff like what your, in fact, your predators drive things really quite heavily. There's another thing that we will talk about called sexual selection, also drives evolution. Um, we haven't got there yet. Some of you guys. That can't be like something bad. No, thank you. Things are on overload. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's sexual selection, we will talk about that. A lot of you guys probably know about that from learning about evolution. That's beside the point. Um, your predator-prey relationships really drive evolution quite a bit. And it's basically an arms race. As soon as the predator can detect something, the prey involves something to get away. Okay? And that something isn't always running faster. Um, it might just be a compromise, like what's happened with the, with the, with the guppies. It's like, yes, I know, evolutionarily I know, that... Females prefer red, but if I'm going to live to reproduce, I better be orange. Always people laughing out there. Have fun, it's good to hear. Okay. And this is where we we're going to end, and we had like a minute left, and this, this stuff, this is pretty important, so I wanted to take some time on this. This is the notion of modularity. Evolutionary psychology likes modularity. It likes what are called cognitive modules, and per perception is a great place to start talking about modularity. A module you can think of, it's a, a cognitive organ. That's a decent definition, right? So it has a different function than something else. So if you look at something like your heart has a different function than your liver. They do different things. Um, one would guess that while they evolve together, that there are different pressures of the, on your heart than there are on your, on your liver, okay? Now, a great example, and that, so that's easy to think of. So if you think of Cognitively, you have these modules, right? Uh, for, you know, this is our guess. You have these modules, and you might have one for solving this kind of problem, one for solving that kind of problem. The key thing to look at is, are they functionally different? Do they solve different problems? Then you're going to get different modules. Perception is a great place to start because perception is clearly modular. So for example, color and brightness in vision are two separate things. We can even go so far as saying, look, you know, let's say, remember I talked about that, there's people that say, in the sort of standard social science model, people will say that um, there's really only one me learning mechanism, or maybe only a few. 
right? And if you say, well, let's compare this species to that species, etc., and they say, yeah, but if you just all you're doing there is changing parameters. All you're doing is just okay, the curve, but the curves look the same. A forgetting curves are forgetting curves. They have a point to a point. However, we can say the same thing about perception in general. Hearing and vision both follow Weber's law. Do we think hearing and vision are the same thing? That's ridiculous. I mean, that, that's almost, you think that's kind of stupid in a way. Are the rules of perception? Yes. Of course. Are there general things we can say? Yeah, there's thresholds, there's J and D's, all that stuff. Vector's power law, Edward's law. We can say all that, that's great. But we would never say that vision and smell were the same thing. We would say they're separate and they evolve separately, though, of course, the evolution of the two, they would affect each other. So even, so that's the idea of modularity. But even within sensory systems, we can talk about modularity. The evolution of color vision versus the evolution of detecting brightness. We talked about how an eye might evolve last time. And we talked about, and that, that really would be a brightness detection eye. Uh, and most animals actually don't see color. Most animals detect um, shades of gray. Right? At least 50. <laughs> By the way, something you should check out about that. Like, you know, that's become a big thing, you know, like porn fiction. Uh, some people on a podcast called NSFW, they did a, a crowdsourced um, novel called The Diamond Club. They're selling it for $9.99 on the, on the iPad bookstore. And it's up to like number four. And it's just bizarre, weird stories that people made up. It has no relationship whatsoever. There's, there's no connection to any of the chapters. It's great. I'm just wondering if they've done this. Sold like thousands and thousands of copies of a completely nonsense book. It's great. Anyway, detecting shades of gray. Color and brightness. So, color vision would evolve separately, wouldn't it? Right? It could. It had almost certainly did. It, would your brightness vision affect your color vision? Well, hell yes. Of course. But they evolve separately. They evolve separately. Okay? So those are separate modules within color, uh, sorry, within vision. Uh, in fact, movement and shape are processed separately. Those of you that take it brain and behavior, or those of you that will take it next year, uh, next term, rather, know, or next year, that shape is processed separately from movement in layers of their occipital lobe. So we can even consider those separate modules, perhaps. So your motion detection system might be, can be affected while your shape detection system isn't. And it gets even weirder because there's color in motion, which is a whole different other layer of your occipital level. We don't have to worry about that right now. You can worry about that if you take 2606. And then we can think about learning, so something cognitive, or even well, sorry, sorry, that's not, not learning. We're still talking about audition, so hearing at this point. It may be that we have so we're going to have frequency, uh, frequency and uh, intensity, right? So loudness in the in the the, the pitch of the, of, the, of the sound. But we've also got in humans, we've got a speech system, and we've got a hearing everything else system, right? 
We have a specialized system not only for producing language, but for receiving language. It's a specialized thing we have. We have an area of our brain, Wernicke's area, that actually does nothing but process speech. And over here, the Wernicke's area, on the left side, what's it do? It's, it's, it's doing meaning, and then over here, it's doing uh, intent and emotion. We have a separate system, probably, for processing speech versus processing any other kind of sound. We know that because you can get a bump on the head that doesn't, you suddenly are no, you no longer understand language. You can get a separate bump on the head that you can no longer create language. But you can perhaps still understand it. When my father got a brain tumor about four and a half years ago, he had a tumor right about there, okay? Area 40, Rodman area 43, primary auditory association cortex. That's where it was. And it got to be the size of the head. But that big. So it was pushing into the rest of his brain. And it pushed a lot back onto his Wernicke's area. Um, sorry, to his Broca's area. Not obviously, but not to his Wernicke's area. Because I could talk to my father and he understood what I said. He couldn't create language very well. Uh, after they removed the tumor, of, you know, which they did as a palliative measure to keep him alive, to give him some uh, uh, quality of life to the end. But for a while, he was saying English words, but they were the inappropriate words, except he was using the same word all the time, so he thought it was this, the right word. His shoes were his Mustangs. It's okay to laugh. It's really okay. Uh, no, his shoes were walnuts. Hamburgers were Mustangs. I was visiting once, and I said, let's go for a walk. And he goes, yeah, 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 okay. Okay, yeah. So short little expressions like, yeah, he could do. He could do, he could swear. Um, and they seem like complete sentences, like a son of a bitch. <laughs> He's looking to that. In fact, one time after he had a hemorrhage and he woke up and he wasn't speaking at all, what my mom and some other people were doing was they were keeping track of how many times he swore and had a tote board. Oh, there's another fuck, you know. Uh, that was, see, that was learning there, so I can mention, I can use the F word, because it was in context. You call one of you some, nah, that's different. Um, but I was just saying once, and Dad and I went for a walk, and he was looking, he was looking for his walnuts, and I went, what? Mom said, I think he needs his shoes. And, oh, okay, let's go, walnuts. Yeah, walnuts. And then he said, I mean, uh, Mom started dinner, and I said, go ahead, just go, just went up my sister, and it was just hamburgers. Because I'm, you know, almost 50, but my mother's like, well, I'll start dinner for you. Um, I was like, Mom, you cook. So anyway, I'm cooking these things, and then we, Dad and I are eating, and they're pretty good, and it's all fine. And he says, these, these, uh, these Mustangs, they're, they're too much English. I said, excuse me? And he looks at me, he says, the Mustangs. Yeah, I said, oh, hamburgers, it's the Mustangs. Okay? He said, too much English. I said, are they too thick? He goes, yeah, too much English. <laughs> so his speech system was really buggered, but he could understand what I was saying. Okay? He knew what I meant. He knew what I meant. So those are, now those are, those are actually separable in your brain. Those are separable in your brain. So they're also, one can imagine that they're going to be separate modules. Well, they could be at least. But speech, for sure, is a separate module from the rest of audition. Right? And we see a lot of things like this. If you think brain behavior, you have to take it. You know about a lot of things like this. 
where people suddenly can't recognize faces. Right? I think Dwayne was talking the other day in class about the, the guy who thought his wife was a hat or something. That strange case. Um, or a common test they actually do that neuropsychologists do when someone's had a hemorrhage or a bump in the head is they ask you to name objects. Because they, you know, one thing I, they'll often do is they'll, you know, they'll say, what are these? And somebody will say, they're uh, things for opening doors. Yeah, well, what are they called? Well, you know, it's an apparatus and it's for opening a door. So they're keys. Yeah, that's right. What do keys do? They open doors. What are these called? Well, they're those things that open doors. They can't name objects. Right? So that could be something, I mean, those are even sort of sub-modules within a linguistic system. So it's very interesting that we can get this. We understand it in perception, and it makes complete sense. We can say that there's a speech module and everything else in, in, in hearing module. We can talk about color, brightness, movement, shape. In uh, hearing. But it's funny. So the, what I'm trying to do is here set you up for the idea that cognitively we would have these kind of modules too. Okay? So because it's easy to understand when you start by thinking about perception. Because when we talk about a cognitive module for X, Y, or Z, say face recognition or speech recognition, it starts to make more sense when you understand about the modularity of perception. Okay? Then I was right. I couldn't have covered that in two minutes. Okay. Questions? Does that make some sense? Okay. Now we'll move on to consciousness. Ew. Not a big consciousness fan. I imagine you would find that every member of our department is not a big consciousness fan. As a topic, we all like consciousness. We're glad we have it. Don't misunderstand it. Lori told me, in fact, she just dropped the whole chapter from intro this year. It's just... There's stuff we can talk about. So I start up and go, uh-oh. Because <laughs> I don't like this whole area. And I want to just lay this out there. I want to make my vibe completely clear to you. I don't know what that guy was I was doing there. I don't know who that was, what that character is. We'll give him a name eventually. Or her. I don't know if she was her name. We all have biases, you know. And don't label me, man. Labels to say. Um, I'm developing the character on the fly here, so it's. So, I don't like this area because I'd like you to tell me what consciousness is. Give me a. I'd like a nice operational definition of consciousness. How are we going to measure that? I know we all know what it is. You know, I got you. I understand. I know what consciousness is. Show me how to measure it, please. Because I can't. I have trouble talking about things I can't measure. I mean, in my job, I can talk about stuff I can't measure all the time. Yeah. It's different. But when I'm talking science, I want to measure stuff. But I, I. My concept of self. What the hell does that mean? 
Right? I don't know what that means. Uh, what's another one you hear? Uh, Self-awareness. How am I to measure that? I don't, I'm not entirely sure. We'll talk about some attempts. Did I know that I am separate from the rest of the universe? A separate being. Well, I know I know that. I can't prove that you are. Because for all I know, you're all mindless automatons. Right? I can't get inside you. Like, this is actually was one of the worst things that ever happened in psychology was when people started in about the early 1900s. And those of you guys that... Uh, I don't think you guys are in fourth year, right? Well, we are in fourth year. If, if you're a psych major, you will take a history of psych class, and you'll learn about introspection and how it almost completely destroyed a young science. When it went from being, you know, vunt and those guys measuring the weights of things and seeing if it's fun, it's heavier, to, well, I'm going to sit here and investigate my own mind. <laughs> something like this. So now I can't argue with you, because that's your own experience. I can't say no, does it? Well, yes, my mind does work with little green men pulling sort of a, in a pulling levers and sort of steampunk sort of universe inside my mind, running everything. And if I said, well, no, it doesn't, well, yes, it does. <laughs> you can't argue with that, right? It almost killed this nice young science that we all are studying now. So, there are ways to get at this, and there are things we can talk about. I just want to get this out there that. It's a little scary to talk about consciousness to me. Right? And again, I know you know what it is and all that stuff. That's not, but I, I can't. As a scientist, I can't accept. Well, we all know what it means. That's not good enough. If you would you walk into a biology class and if the Brandon Champ said to you, "Well, we all know what ecology means," so class dismissed. <laughs> He'd say that, but it would take 45 minutes. Um, it's a little Brandon joke. Just. Okay, we can talk about automatic processing. Okay. There are things to do automatic. Uh, this, you know, we walk. That's pretty automatic. Uh, if I teach anybody to walk, you just walk. Uh, we read automatically. I think this is probably either... Every, English is probably everybody's first language in here, or it is one of your first languages. Did anybody learn English like later in life? So yeah, you're all native English speakers, even if you learn one or two, two other languages at once or something. So you just read that. It just happened. You didn't have to sound it out. It wasn't like it was when you were in grade one. Automatic processing. You didn't have to do that. You can even see words you've never seen in your life, but you can just read them. You have to even sound them out. It's pretty rare, and it's kind of funny when you read a word and go, Whoa, suddenly I'm in flashbacks to phonics class. <laughs> ah, yes, phonics. I remember the book well. It was orange with black writing on the outside that said phonics. Oh, boy, it was exciting. Um, but I learned to read. And when you look at a second language, when you're learning a second language, you do have to sound words out, right? Look at it go, yeah, I don't know. Especially if you learn a different alphabet, if you're learning Russian or you're learning Arabic or something like that. You know, you're sending words out. But you do this automatically. This just happens. Okay, so that's something we do automatically. Um, we can talk about your sleep sleep wakefulness cycle. Consciousness is when you're awake. Unconsciousness is when you're sleeping. A friend of mine back in Newfoundland, Roy Hospitaler, said to me once, "I can prove to you 
with Freudian theory that dogs are conscious. Keep in mind, he was kidding. I said, okay, Roy, tell me. He said, well, dogs dream, right? I said, yeah, sure. Well, dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. If they're unconscious, they have to be conscious too. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's right. You know, that's one of those things, if you accept the premise, and the way I said it like that, um, I really don't. Uh, so your sleep-wakefulness cycle, and that's something you can look at. Self-awareness, that's where it gets. And what we'll talk about, there is a way to kind of get at this, that I'm skeptical about, but I have a bias against the guy in Oxford. <laughs> get there. Um, some of these things are harder to measure than others. I think that's easy to measure, automatic processing. Sleep-wakefulness is really easy to measure. I can use an EEG to do that. Self-awareness, uh, that's a little harder. Okay. Okay, so, that I can do. But there's ways around some of this stuff, so what the heck. Okay, let's start with sleep. Why do we sleep evolutionarily? Not, you know, I know you, melatonin, then yada yada yada, you sleep. That's, that's the biochemistry, melatonin, yada yada yada, then you sleep. <laughs> um, well, what happens when you sleep is regeneration. Uh, if you're a kid, human growth hormones released a lot when you sleep, and you, that's where you grow up being thrown like a bull. Um, see a lot of regeneration. This is, in fact, when you're sick, you sleep, and your immune system works harder when you're asleep. Because it doesn't have to be doing anything else. Like, the rest of your body it isn't doing stuff. So you can work on healing yourself, right? Plus, as I say here, there's the whole rotating of the earth and what have you. There's a time when there's a time to be awake and a time to be asleep. Right? Time to live, time to die, time for peace, as I swear it's not too late. Um, that's the birds. Turn, 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 1967. I knew it was too old for all of you, but I did it for myself. It's interesting, when you take a look at stuff that's evolved in constant darkness, animals that evolved in constant darkness, they don't sleep. They don't sleep. So what this is, is being in tune with the rhythmicity of the planet. Right? We've talked about the gene in fungi, the gene in um, Drosophila, and the gene in hamsters that's basically 99% hybridized. It's the same freaking gene. Rhythmicity of, a, of an organism is something that is in every organism that is in any light or dark. Okay. If you've got a plant, plants aren't going to be doing a lot of uh, growth at night, right? Because they need with the sunshine. They need with the sunshine. <laughs> so they're growing in the day. There's going to be more sugar running through them in the day. So if you're a, a herbivore, you're probably going to be awake during the day. So it follows, doesn't it? Now, if I'm a carnivore, I'll be after things that are going to be awake during the day. So you can see how any kind of rhythmicity that's in plants is going to kind of cascade into animals. Now, if I'm a little tiny animal, maybe I don't want to be awake during the day because there's animals that can eat me. So I'll be awake at night. Right? So you can see how this kind of goes pretty, it makes a lot of sense that we do sleep, that we have a downtime and an uptime. That said, 
Here's a better question. Why are we awake? Dude. A lot of animals hibernate, don't they? It's been long periods of time to sleep. Okay. Why don't we? It's a good question. Just come out, reproduce, have something to eat, and go back to sleep. What, what is the function of us being awake? Now, not just humans either, because you know not all animals hibernate. Most animals don't. But where should we be at? This would depend probably on your ecology, predator-prey relationships, etc. So part of our environment, part of being a human, let's think about that, is that we have to teach a great deal of culture to our children. Right? They have a lot of learning to do. Human um, infants are way more altricial, so immature, than any other primate. Right? I mean, it's not like, you think about this, like a chimp, by the time it's four years old, it can reproduce. In a human, at a really low weight, it's probably 12. There's stuff to learn. Our babies are helpless. Human babies are losers. They're completely helpless. Right? The kids are stupid. If they weren't stupid, they'd be adults already. Homer Simpson. <laughs> so, but think about that. In some respects, Homer's got a point. Because there's a lot of things a baby and a child have to learn. They, horses come up and they walk. And they run. Horses are funny. Um, whereas babies, they aren't walking till they're two. Horses are running hard; they can run on racetracks when they're two. You know, we have a lot to learn. So we don't maybe have time to hibernate. Also, think about this: we aren't that big. A bear can pretty reliably crawl into its den and have a now they don't release. Uh, Hibernate. Well, you know, actually, bears don't actually really hibernate. It's hibernating. It's hibernatesque. If you're 300 kilos and strong as a bear because you're a bear, <laughs> something pisses you off when you wake up, like when you're having your long sort of Turper time, you know, like when you're not really awake, you're not, you're not, so you're not really hibernating, but it's pretty close. You don't go, oh no, that rat is nibbling on me. <laughs> it's not going to kill you. If you're something that's huge, you're a, you're a top of the line predator, right? We aren't. Yeah, we are now because we have invented guns and airstrikes, you know. We can kill with pushes of buttons. We couldn't always do that. So it makes some sense, probably, that we don't hibernate. We have to, we have to teach our, our young a lot. Um, our physiology, we have to shut it down like that. We aren't big enough to lay down that much fat. Things like that. So it makes some sense. But it's an interesting question. Why <laughs> be awake? 
Most animals don't hibernate, right? Okay. Now, let's talk about what we want to call voluntary action. This always bugs me because pretty, I'm pretty sure there's no such thing as free will, but that's a whole other topic. Um, probably most of our behavior is mediated by unconscious cognition. And if you think, well, it's unconscious cognition. Because you tend to think of cognition as having effort, right? Cognition is just the representation of the world and acting on that representation. That's all it is. Okay? That's a, that's a nice, that's a decent definition of cognition anyway. A beautiful example is like riding a bike. Riding a bike, and I mention that because um, two reasons, there's some nice research on this, and second, I don't drive a car. Um, though those of you that drive know that now it has become completely, while well, you want to drive the car, it's voluntary, it's also unconscious. You don't have to think about driving. It just happens. There was a time when you got into a car and sat down and you went through all the steps, I imagine. Right? You don't have to do that anymore. And it's even, because a bike is simpler to do than a car, it's even simpler than a bike. So you get on a bike and you go. And you think to yourself, it's a, you ever watch little kids learn to ride a bike? And you think, how can you not do this? It's as hard as walking. Not a difficult task, is it, to ride a bike? Yet people find kids take some long time to learn. Some kids have trouble all their lives riding. They never really learn how to ride a bike with any sort of confidence. But most people learn it pretty quickly, and they ride a bike, no problem. And like I said, it's like it turns out like it's like walking. McBurney, one of our the authors of the textbook, has, has a, some great research asking undergraduates how to turn on a bicycle. How do you turn? And the question, the, you know, how do you turn right? People tend to answer the question like this. You turn the handlebars to the right. If you try that on a bicycle, you will fall over. You will fall right over. You think, what? Because you don't, that's not how you turn. If you're going to turn right, you go straight, right? And then you take a little turn to the left, and then you go to the right. It's actually, it's really pretty simple physics. You just do that. That's why, in fact, kids fall over on bikes. Right? You can get going, again, centrifugal force will keep you up, get a little bit of speed going. But this is when kids fall. I mean, you guys, most of you have kids, one day you'll have a kid, you'll teach them to ride a bike, and what they'll do is they'll do this. They'll try to turn and they'll just go, bang. And you can't, because most people don't even know, and they've already found it, 99% of these undergraduate students that you ask this don't really answer this, how do you turn a bike? They all say, just turn like that, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You actually turn a little bit to the left and then to the right. We didn't even know, we don't even know this. We just do it. Right? This is something that just happens. Here's another one, playing a video game. When you first play a game, if you, if you make, so I'm talking about uh, so using a controller, so not, not with a keyboard, but using a controller, you might, for the first, until the tutorial's done, you have to learn what buttons to push. 
But when someone comes over to your house to play against you in like NHL 12 or 13 or whatever it's at, or Madden or something, and they say, how do you pass? And you go, I don't know. Wait till I pass and I'll tell you. Like, I couldn't tell you right now how to do that. If I had, if I had the game in front of me, I could tell you. Uh, right trigger, yeah. Right? But I had to imagine I was playing right now. So it's interesting that it's become what we say it's cognitively impenetrable. We can't get at it. I can't tell you how to ride a bike. I can't tell you how to play in HL 13. It's like the first time you play a first-person shooter against somebody and they say, how do you move around? And you go, you know. It would be the left thumbstick, right? You look around the right. And think about it. Have you ever played a game where they switch those two around? James Bond, those James Bond games, uh, what was that called? Nightfire, which was a neat looking game, but they switched it around. And I was always walking around like this in the game. It's like James had too many of his rocket launchings shaking on shit. Because they'd school with me, <laughs> they'd mess with the controls. You finished that game, it's a good game. So they've become cognitively impenetrable. We actually can't, and most of, of the time, how do you read? Don't know, you just do. Now sometimes for some people things are cognitively impenetrable, for most people they aren't. Most people are very fr frustrating. My younger brother's like that with, with playing musical instruments. He can play anything, and he can't explain to you how he does it. Right? I've seen him pick up a trombone, a violin, a flute, and just play it the first time. Just he's never played it in his life. And you say, how did you do that? And he looks at you literally, honestly, and also a little bit of snarky look on his face. He goes, I don't know, how do you not? Right? Or people that can draw perfectly, and he can also do that too. He's really annoying. You know people that like draw a picture that looks like a photograph, like it looks perfect? My younger sister can do that, so can my brother. Then you just look at something and think, how did you do that? I don't know, you just look at it and draw it. Well, no, no, you don't. I get sick, man. <laughs> I can try, but it doesn't work. But they can't explain how to do it. So that is somewhat helpful. We can talk about, like, and I think most things that we do are cognitively impactful. Most of the learning we do actually takes place without us knowing it. Uh, when I see what we're I can ask you what's going on. In a classical conditioning experiment, where I'll give you a CS and a US. Right condition signals, unconditioned signals. You will respond as if you've learned it already before you, you can tell me what happened. So if I did eye blink conditioning, which is a pretty simple thing, I, I, I uh, sit you down in a chair, and I play a tone, and just as, as the tone's on for a little while, and this is usually no, within milliseconds, I then puff the air into your eye, and you blink. Now, after trial one, you have no idea what's going on. By trial two, when that light comes on, you blink a little more quickly than you did at trial one. You've already learned something, but you can't tell me. 
It takes very little time for you to be able to tell me, by the way. Four or five trials, you go, yeah, the sound blows air in my eye. Now stop it. <coughs> this isn't worth the half percent I'm getting for intro psych. Or even more complicated things when it's like, you know, here's a lever you have to push or a button you have to push. Right? So push a button. And every so many times you get a reward of some sort. You typically can't tell me what happened. There's a great experiment that an honor student of mine did back in 1997 for his honors thesis. I'll explain this to you. Uh, his name is Marius Shustalo. And Marius looks just like a young Ishtvan. And he talks like, it's like he's Ishtvan. I remember when we hired Ishtvan, I said, Cheryl, this is what my And she said, Marius Shustalo. I thought Marius were whispering at the time. Neat experiment. So what Marius did, is he's got, he's got he's got two passages or a passage uh, sorry some kind of science fiction novel some sort and the word president appeared in the passage 50, uh, thirty times that was thirty times um, okay and that's they're hearing that in one ear in their left ear in their right ear they're hearing a different story okay and the one in the right ear they have to shadow they have to actually tell. Repeat it out loud. So they, and I don't know if you guys know about this, you probably do about dichotic listening. You can't tell me what the story is in your left ear if you're repeating what's being said in your right ear. Okay? The other part of the task was people had to push a space bar when the light came, when the, when the computer screen flashed, you had to push the space bar. Okay? Okay. So in one group, the relationship between the words pres the word president and the flashing of the screen, there was no relationship. Did people get any faster pushing the space bar? No. Well, how could they? It's unpredictable. In the other group, as soon as the word president was uttered in the left ear, the unattended ear, the, space, the, the, the screen would flash and they had to push the space bar. And they got faster at it. The reaction time dropped. So they've associated the word president with the, the flash of the screen, and they learned that president meant the screen was going to flash and made the space bar. Now the key thing, put down his name. At the end of the experiment, Marius asked him, did you notice the story in your left ear? And the only thing anybody ever noticed was, was that Dr. Brodbeck talking? Because it was, I was talking in both ears. I, and the recording was of me. That's all anyone noticed. That's really, by the way, this is one of the most clever honors thesis experiments I've ever supervised. And he collected almost all his data the night before it was due. He was that kind of guy. He never took notes in class. He just sat there. And he talked like this. He talked just like that. He would say things like, you know, if you want, I could have that guy killed. Like, he's, 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 he's all sort of strangely related to Eastern European mafia groups. He sort of figured. He had a computer company. I bought a computer phone. First, he said, do you want a laptop? I said, no, I want a desktop. Because I can get you a laptop, 500 bucks, no questions asked. I said, you mean it's stolen? No questions asked. I said, no, no, that's not what no questions asked means. 
It doesn't mean I can't ask where it comes from. And he, said, he, he sold me a computer. Though it was a good computer for the time. And he said, the only thing, never register with Microsoft. <laughs> it's not really Windows I need. It's, it's a Shishtal I need. <laughs> so, he's selling pirate software. But anyway, it's uh, a neat experiment. Very clever. This is a case where you, this is a, it really was conditioning. The subjects had no idea they'd learned this, but they learned it. Super clever experiment. Super clever. So this was an implicit memory task, you could say. And we, when we talk about priming and other implicit memory type tasks, they're actually served by different regions than explicit memory. Do you know about priming? Do you know priming? Maybe not. Well, it works like this. Most of the memory, as I said, you have is implicit. You're not aware of it. And here's a task that's an implicit memory task. Fill in the blanks. Okay? It's called word fragment completion. Okay. That's pretty easy. It's coffee. For those of you scoring at home. Now, if you're using the home version, um, if I gave you a list of words before we start, before I, I did, did the word fragment completion, Okay. How do you spell Coco? Is it A-O? Yeah. Yeah, okay. No? How do you spell Coco? It's O-A, not A-O? Cacao. I was thinking of something else. Okay. Sorry. I use that because it's another brown liquid people drink in the morning. So you can. I've given you a list of words. And the words, the word coffee was on the list. Okay? Where cocoa wasn't on the list. By the way, you, you don't have to have read the word, just read the word cocoa to fill that in. Right? Now, but if, if I have given you the word coffee on that list, you're more likely to fill in the word coffee than you are to fill in the word cocoa. Okay? That shows memory. But it's not memory you're aware of, because if I ask you, give me, repeat as many of the words I just gave you on the list, that's ex called explicit memory, you're actually making a point of recalling it. Your probability of completing coffee is completely independent of if you remember the word coffee or not. That's called priming. This is primed. And this is something, this priming is actually uh, retained in people that have brain injuries that who have no more episodic memory. No explicit memory. So people that get bumps on the head, whatever, and get amnesia, they can't they don't remember that I gave them the word coffee, but they'll still fill this in more than they'll fill in the word cocoa. That's probably actually how reading does work. Is it, it's, it's an implicit task, you fill in blanks, etc. And they're actually served by different brain reasons. We know that like people get a bump on the head, right? Language learning is, is an implicit memory task. It's not conscious. You don't have to, no one sits you down as a child and teaches you your mother tongue. Right? Your parents will go, you know, keys. But they don't teach you about definite and indefinite articles. They teach you some vocabulary. Right? 
But all they have to do is talk to you. That's all they have to do. And you just learn. You learn language. No one has to explain grammar to you. You don't sit down with a kid and say, no, that's, see, that's, that's different. Now, now let's work on the future tense. Like, it just happens. It just happens. Even in French, when they got tenses that change depending on the other week. It's not quite like that. It's almost like that. They get that tense that they only write down. They never say. There's some weird past tense they don't say. They just write it down. Shh, the secret. Don't tell anybody about that tense. We only write it down. What's that called, Emma? Passé sem? Is that right? Colors of ocean. Yeah, she'll love that. They were making fun of the thing you teach. Um, <laughs> what's that crazy verb that you people have? Yeah, that's right, I said you people. Um, but you, know, you can even learn two languages at once or three. No problem. Right? Bilingual kids, no big deal. Kids in Switzerland learn three languages at the same time. Right? They might, their mother tongue would be usually German because most people in Switzerland Swiss, Swiss speak German. But they're taught, as soon as they get to like, you know, when they're four years old, get to school, they're taught Italian and French as well. No big deal. Right? Everybody speaks three languages, four languages. It's not hard. When you're older, it becomes an explicit task. And those of you that have taken a second language as an adult, it's totally different. It's a completely different experience, right? Because as a kid, you don't even remember learning language as a kid. It just happened. You even think of like a French immersion class. You can watch kids that can't speak a word of French. And they walk into a classroom, and the teacher's speaking French, and the kids are crying. They have no idea what's going on. The teacher's some kind of strange foreigner. And then like two months, the kids are speaking French. Right? Perhaps with a Newfoundland accent. Funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Kids speaking French with Newfoundland accents, doing a rap of the alphabet. It was cute as hell, but it was also like I was living in a Dali painting. So this just happens automatically, language. It just, there it is, right? Okay, now, now we'll do awareness. Oh, God. <laughs> um, this is where it gets a little ethereal. It's out in the air. The unity of consciousness. How is it that I feel like I'm one being? I'm not high right now. I actually just said that. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like something you'd say when you're high. How do you know you're one being, man? Dude. What a little high. But it's just a little crystal meth before class. But that's the unity of consciousness. Like You know you're one thing. And how, this is another one, the binding problem, which sounds like something you get after eating a lot of cheese. But actually, thank you. The binding problem actually is that we take all this information, you've got memories, right? And all the stuff you know, right? So semantic memory, you've got episodic memory, stuff that you like. Plus, you've got all the stuff going on around you. You've got all the sights and sounds and the smells, hopefully they're good smells, uh, tastes. Everything that's happening around you 
And it all just comes together. And they all, all serve, we'll talk, starting today with modularity, they're served by different things. Yet it all comes together to form an experience. That's called the binding problem. And that really is a problem that no one solved. How in the hell does this happen? It's mind-boggling. And we see what happens when people uh, have, have specific lesions and they can't do certain things. They can't put some things together. Uh, there are specific lesions you can get, and again, if you want to learn about this stuff, take brain behavior next term, but where people can't put, they can only see parts of things. They don't see holes. So you give them a line drawing that looks like this. So it's that. Chimney with some smoke and a So you give them that. And you say, can you draw that, please? And they draw this. And they go, yeah, there you go. They can't put it together. The funny thing is, they didn't look at that and go, I think that's wrong. Pretty sure that's not what you have there. But they can't explain to you what's wrong. So we know we can you can screw with this. Right? So how do we put stuff together? That's a beautiful question. Aristotle said we had common sense. That's the term common sense doesn't mean make sure you wear pants in the morning. It means it's the sense that puts all the senses together. Aristotle, see, these guys were thinking about, we can make fun of Aristotle and Plato and all these guys, and these guys that thought your thinking happened in your heart, you know, all that kind of stuff. But they're working at the first principles, so we can laugh at them all we want. No one's going to have pictures of us or talk about us on PowerPoint slides in 2,000 years. It's not going to happen. I can call, I, I'm confident enough to say that nobody in here is going to ever get that face. Right? Unless one of you guys goes on some kind of weird killing spree. And I'm sure, how would you get that famous? Well, you're wrong this time, Ari. His friends call him Ari. We don't have a common sense. That's the, we don't have a sense that puts the senses together. It's actually a very sensible notion. That is wrong. Um, the key thing with humans is visual dominance. We actually, what we see will overrule the rest of our senses. It completely will overrule the rest of our senses. So if I give you mashed potatoes, most people like mashed potatoes. This is something people like. Right? In Western culture, one of is a comfort food, you know? So especially you gotta, you gotta use cream, not, not milk, and butter. Well, screw around. You know, and don't ever eat margarine. That's like, there's one thing. Not even food, really. So, if I give you that, most people will, will enjoy it. They'll, they'll like it. And then if, uh, if I give it in the dark, and you eat it, it's fine. You can call it mashed potato. And then if I, you turn the lights on and I dye it neon green, or even better, let's dye it blue, because there's no blue food. Even blueberries are purple. Make it like neon blue. You know what? You're like, no, these, these taste horrible all of a sudden. Because your vision's like, oh, I can't eat blue food. 
There's no blue food. What is this, Avatar? <laughs> so our vision really overrules everything, because probably because it's for us the one that's most accurate. We rely on more data. The question you're just doing that with your hair, I can't tell. I'm not making fun of you, I swear. Sorry. Don't be sorry. <laughs> Damn it, stop fixing your hair. How dare you fix your hair in my class? Remember, you know, things like that. Like I've said this before. I always had this horrible fear that Rick Myers walks by. The president of the university walks by. They just telling people not to fix their hair. So, where did this visual dominance come from? And where did self awareness come from? Okay? Good question. These are big questions. Danny Pavanelli and Kant, who I don't know who Kant is, I know who Danny is, did some neat work. Danny Pavanelli wasn't swinging through trees, but Danny's idea is that swinging through trees is something that involves and a matter of a lot of vision, a lot of visual process. Right? Because if you screw that up, you get hurt. You've seen Planet of the Apes, you know they jump from tree to limb to limb. Or from perhaps Spider-Man. Think about that. You make one mistake, you're 20, 30 meters up in the, in the forest canopy. You jump from one tree to the other, and you didn't jump far enough, it's like, oh, I screwed that up, you're dead. You're not passing any genes on at that point, pal. Now, what Danny and, and Kant, and I wish I knew Kant's name, because I, I know Danny, so I call him Danny, and then it sounds silly. Um, they gave these animals, they gave animals the mirror test, different, different um, primates. You know the mirror test? This is when you anesthetize an animal, and you put, a, a, put some dye on its forehead, And then when it wakes up, it looks at itself in the mirror. And if the animal knows that that's it in the mirror and not another animal, it does a lot of this. Oh. Right? They, they finger it, they look at it in the mirror from different angles. Right? So, think about this. So you got two things. You have the mirror test and we got swinging through trees. There is one primate that does not pass the mirror test. And it's the gorillas. And the gorillas don't pass the test. Gorillas also never, ever in their evolutionary history were in the trees. Okay? Gorillas just get mad at the other gorilla they see that does exactly what it does. Stop copying me! Exactly! It's like you're a mirror image of me. If actually the gorillas could talk, that'd be impressive. And, you know, but no. So other apes passed this test. But gorillas don't. Gorillas have always been on the ground. That's kind of cool. That says something. So the idea of being a tree swinger, right, living up in the forest canopy to a point, if you're going to do that, you have to be really good at spatial tasks and be really good at vision. 
And what's happened, according to, to Danny, is that these, you've got all this processing power, so you become aware of your surroundings. You just have to be aware of your surroundings a lot, right? If you become aware of your surroundings, you're part of the, you've got to be aware that you're separate from the surroundings. Hold on a sec. Did we evolve in the trees? No. We didn't, did we? We didn't evolve in trees. Remember walking with cavemen? We weren't in trees. We went up to trees and went up and got honey. One of my favorite scenes in that whole thing. It's stupid. <laughs> That and I like this guy too. <laughs> that guy was good. The disappointment he showed it, the other guy's chasing that wildebeest thing and he chases it for three days. The other guy's like, he runs after it, it runs away. The guy comes back, he's like. Chalk doesn't taste nearly as good as it looks. <laughs> now, we never evolved the trees. But our common ancestor probably did with uh, the chimp. Okay, it was probably in the, in the trees. Now, what's the what's going on here? This is something called exaptation, or should say exaptation. Should say exaptation or exaptation. It's also said, not exaptation. An exaptation is when evolution takes a hold of something that had an original. Function and uses it for another function. A great example of this is feathers in dinosaurs and eventually, well, the dinosaurs that are around now, which are birds. I love now that birds are officially classed as dinosaurs. It makes me so happy. Because now people would do PhD thesis on a memory of dinosaurs. Pretty cool. So the Jurassic Park thing we were doing, me and Newman from Seinfeld. Um, so feathers originally evolved, this is, this is a good guess, the feathers originally evolved to keep the young warm. Okay? Like down, and then when you're older, again, still thermal regulation, keep you warm. They're also tremendous at keeping you up in the air. So feathered, non-avian dinosaurs evolved into avian dinosaurs, or what we call birds. Right? The feather wasn't, it didn't evolve from that. It evolved from something completely different. So what do we have? We have this very complicated system of knowing where we are in our 3D environment. We've got good vision, and we've got a cognitive system that's like, I know exactly where I am at all times. Because it was originally selected for keeping me from falling on my head from a tree. But I'm not in the trees anymore. I'm not in the trees anymore. I'm on the ground. And I suddenly have all this expo. I've got all this stuff on this, this, this ability already built in. And now, if I'm on the ground, and we saw this in Walking with Cavemen, I'm screwed, right? I'm a, I'm a priest, I'm not a predator in a lot of these ways. I can't run fast. There's one thing I can do. I can see, I, I'm, I'm up and awake during the, when it gets really hot and sunny, other animals can't do that because I don't have any fur. 
that and I'm smart. Everything else, I got nothing. I can't run as fast. I don't have big, powerful jaws. That's a pretty high, heavy selective pressure to become smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter. I've already got something built in, which is I know where I am in 3D space. So maybe this is where consciousness comes from. That it's the ultimate byproduct of us being smart. Okay, so we have the acceptation, the idea that the we already had this, this this complex cognitive thing that can tell us where we are in three D space and and be good with analyzing visual input, and we don't need that anymore. But we have to have something that keeps us from getting eaten by saber tooth tigers. Because all we got is that we can run around a little bit during the afternoon, and that we're smart. It's also kind of a whole bunch of if this, then this, then maybe that, then a bit of this. We don't really know. And we probably never will. Until my timer's machine is perfected, we never really will know. But I've said too much about my time machine. So we don't, we're never really going to know. This is a good start. And the idea that the gorillas don't pass the, the, the dot test is, is, is pretty good. I don't like the dot test. But I don't like it just because I don't like the guy who developed it. So it's not really fair. And it's not that I don't like him. He just was the editor of the Journal of Comparative Psychology. He rejected a paper of mine in 1995. So I'm holding a grudge. It's nothing to do with being good at something. Not very many animals pass the dot test. Uh, humans, of course. The elephants do. Elephants do. Uh, dolphins? Bird, there's no bird that does. You have a bird, a mirror, they just peck at it and attack it. Get away from me! Bird that looks just like me. <laughs> but if you do aggression experiments in pigeons, you show them a mirror and you, they just peck at it. Stupid birds. You had your chance. So, this is the idea then that the unity of the self comes in. The idea that we now know when we put together all our sensory stuff and everything we've thought about, and when we make that, and that's, a, that, that's what consciousness then being is. It's the unity of the self and it being separate from the environment. By the way, this kind of explanation of what consciousness is and how it evolved does not then preclude other animals having what we call consciousness. So it could be the case that a chimp knows it's a chimp. Now they don't think like us, they don't think in words like we do, things like that. But a chimp might actually know that it's a chimp. And I mean actually think about it. Not think, why am I a chimp? I don't think they're doing that. These are animals that throw poop at each other. They're not that advanced. There's a whole movement out there to give great apes personhood. So they get rights? I don't think anything that throws poop for you know, should have rights. It's just a personal thing. I, that's what I'd say to the UN. You want these things to vote? Then again, 
Now, who's going to get the chimp vote? But it'd be great, because you'd have all these, you know, the, the, the politicians would then be speaking to chimps. He's clearly pandering to the chimps. He's throwing bananas and poop at them, you know. Mitt Romney would do that. Just anything to for a vote. You know? One of the things that we've evolved to do is we deceive ourselves. We actually lie to ourselves and believe the lies. Now, I don't know that other animals are doing this. For example, we have what's called the self-serving bias. This idea that I am better than most people. You ask people if they're better than a better person, most people 80% say yes. And of course, that's impossible. Can't be 80%. Yeah. You ask people if they're smarter than most people, again, but 80% say yes, I'm smarter than the average person. Well, that seems exceedingly unlikely. It's probably going to be 50% should be saying it if they actually do. So we, we have this bias. It's, it's like, you know, like uh, in social psychology, the fundamental attribution error, right? What do you do? You blame yourself. You, when good things happen, and you did it, it's because you worked hard. Right? Why did you do well in that test? Because I studied hard. Why did you fail? Because Broadbeck's an asshole. <laughs> right? Why did that guy cut you off? Why, why did you cut somebody off when you're driving? Because you were distracted and having a bad day, and you give him that wave, that, sorry. When he cuts you off, he's a bad driver and a bad person. Right? Have you ever cut, had somebody cut you off and they yelled at them, you must be having a really bad day! <laughs> no, you yell, you asshole! Right? That's what you do. This is why it's good I don't drive. The road rage would be unreal. Because <laughs> I follow people They did that. I just follow them. That's the thing my dad did. My dad was one of those drivers in the 401, get right up behind you and turn his lights on, on and off if you're not going 140. Yeah. Speed up! <laughs> Dad, we're all going to die. Calm down. <laughs> so, we have these self-serving biases. They're actually great because they, they, they convince us to keep behaving. A lot of times, if you're realistic, you wouldn't do stuff. Realistically, when you go approach someone from the opposite sex, the chances are you're going to get shot down. Right? That's just, I hate to break it to you, you all know that though, right? Yeah, we keep trying. <laughs> you keep trying, you keep going, okay, I think I can do this. Yeah, well, I'm looking pretty good today. Yeah, yeah, okay. Let's go with, what's your major? That's usually a good, good starting line. Yeah, let's go with So it's actually sensible to deceive yourself now and then. It gets you to do things you probably wouldn't do if you rationally looked at stuff. If you were rational about things, there's a lot of things you wouldn't try. If you based it solely on probabilities, you would never apply for a job, would you? Well, probably not going to get it. We, we, what do we call that behavior? We call it depression, don't we? Right? People don't do anything. Oh, I'm not going to get out of bed. What's the use? I'm 
I'm an unimportant loser. And it's like, you know, really, you're right. But you can't say that to depressed people because they kill themselves. So it's bad. But it's true. Think about it. Depressed people are almost more realistic than non-depressed people. We're, we're deceiving ourselves all the time. This is the guy, I shouldn't be telling you this because now you're all going to get sad. <laughs> Here's some great examples. I will love you forever. People say that to, to, to each other. You can't know that, and chances are you won't. It doesn't mean you won't love being together and want to stay together, all that great stuff. That's all wonderful stuff and be a companion to you. But the same kind of feeling you have when you're 22 and you first meet, just not going to happen. It doesn't happen. You're lying to yourself and the other person. But you don't want to say that you believe it to. Now, some people... I'm not saying that everybody is like that, but a lot of people are. 50% of marriages end in, well, 42, I think, in Canada, end in divorce. The people get, now, some people get married and they go, it's a bad idea, I imagine. But most people, they get married, it's like, this is a cool thing, because you know what? You don't go spend a whole bunch of money like that and think, well, I hope this works. <laughs> I'm taking a chance. That's not what you do it, right? You say, this is, I'm going all in. This is a great idea. I will be faithful to you forever. I will never screw around with you. When you sign the form when you get married, at least, okay, I got married to Quebec in civil ceremony, so when I signed the form, I believe I signed the thing. It was all in French. I don't know what it said. I knew what it said. <laughs> but it actually, you know, at the excluding all others, you know, you're not supposed to say there was no line, you know, except if you were kind of drunk. <laughs> you know, there's nothing like that in there. But people screw around them. Now, again, some happy statistics here. Uh, 90% of people in long-term relationships or marriages in Canada have been faithful within the last year. Okay, so that's, that's nice to hear. But there's a lot of people that aren't. Yes, sir? I think what people don't realize is that we're constantly changing over time. We're not the same person no, that exactly. we were before. And people don't realize that, hey, no. when they say that they love you, they love who you are now. Yeah. Who's going to say that you're going to love the person they are before? No. When these marriages persist, it's because they've learned to adapt. or. Oh, I agree. That's exactly true. And I think people whose marriages last know this and realize that, look, we aren't in our early 20s or late teens anymore, but... I still love being around you and you're a great person and all that stuff. But you feel different. You can't not feel different because you're, it's a different person. Exactly. You grow it's a different up. different type of love. I mean, yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree. But we do, when we get married, believe this. Like, people, like I said, yeah. people don't think, I, I know there are people like this, but very few people think, well, it's probably got a 50% chance. What the hell? <laughs> you know, because if that was the case, you wouldn't say, so I guess I'll spend a bunch of money and have a big, make a big spectacle of this <laughs> and perhaps have children. You don't think that way because if you did, you wouldn't have kids, etc. It's actually a really sensible way to deceive yourself yeah. because you're going to have to pass your jeans on. I'll pay you back that 10 bucks I owe you. Right? We all have friends like that. We have friends. That they, and they mean it. They mean it. I just need 10 bucks. Uh, actually, I owe you 40 bucks, man. Uh, no, really, I'll pay you back. I just need 10 bucks. And they're very sincere looking and they're lying to you. Right? And they don't even know they're like this, right? They don't know they're like that. 
It's much more convincing to say these things when you actually believe them yourself. Right? Yeah, so I'm glad. I got a quote Seinfeld because my favorite line ever was, George, it's not a lie if you believe it. That's right. Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. Exactly. Um, but we do this all the time, and these aren't done in, with, maliciously. Uh, yeah, do people do these things maliciously? Yeah, sure. Right? Are there people that are screwing around their wives or husbands even as they're getting married? Yes, there are. That's malicious. They're, they're lying, right? Are there people that really don't love people they get married? It's, that happens, yeah. Are there people that are just taking your money and as they walk away for 10 bucks, they go, yeah, those bastards exist. But they don't tend to have friends for very long. Right? When you say these things, you believe them, and a lot of times they're lies. And if you actually sat down and thought about it, honestly, you would know you were really probably lying to yourself. Right? But no one says at your wedding, when they're making the toasts and all that stuff, <laughs> well, you know, probably roughly a 60, I would say 58% chance this thing's going to work. Good luck. <laughs> you know, that's not a happy toast. You don't say that. Right? You don't say, I love you. Well, I think I love you now. I don't know how it will be in a few years. Here's a ring. Hope you like it. I want it back if this all falls apart. <laughs> you don't do things like that. Because it's not, like, it's sensible to deceive yourself. So while we may be the most self-aware animal we are, the most self-aware animal on this planet, and we evolved that way, and we'll talk about, throughout the course why we're like that. And it's probably an outcome of us being so damn smart. We still lie to ourselves all the time. But it's very, these are very, these are fitness-enhancing lies, aren't they? You can pass your genes on. You can pass your genes on and make sure that they aren't passing their genes on to somebody else. I got resources from you. Questions about that stuff?
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.